Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. Uh, AP Andy is still on his uh, European-style month-long vacation. A whirlwind tour of the northeastern United States. On a bicycle, which, you know, very impressive. Very charming, very charming. It's like a, he could make like a French uh, art film out of it or something. Yeah, totally. Call it Le Bicyclette. <laughs> oh my God. Andy. Oh, that would be so good. And I'm just picturing Andy riding his little bike all over, just, black and white. It would be just like 500 hours of GoPro footage with Andy <laughs> yeah. just riding his bike around suburban uh, New York State. Hey, someone would watch that. Somebody would watch that. It could win a Cannes Film Festival for all we know. You never know. You never know what's going to speak to just people. Th- slap that Antifada label on it and it, can go, it could go really far. Antifada the movie. <laughs> just Andy riding a bike. The sequel is just you riding a train. <laughs> I don't know what your uh, threequel would be then. Walking around and complaining about the weather. Petting my cats. I yeah, don't know. That sounds great. It's it's ASMR style. But anyway. Well, look forward, folks, to the three-part Antifada film coming quick soon to nowhere because it's a really <laughs> dumb idea <laughs> but andy will be back uh sometime soon yeah we yeah can't wait to see that little mapache it's a good thing um nothing important happened no. the past few weeks there's been no news we might have wanted to comment on i uh well before we get into news what have you been up to recently oh well um as you know Pandemic is a time of many hobbies. Indeed, yes. And That's all we have but hobbies. I've gone through a number of phases in my pandemic hobbies. Uh, I've started getting into wine. I probably shouldn't even tell people that because it's like incredibly bougie. No, but it's not. Only in the United States is it bougie. If you go to anywhere in Europe, it's like prole as fuck to just drink well, like good. really cheap ass wine or good wine. Because if you go to France, like the wine is really cheap and really good because it's all made there. I think like imagining that wine is really expensive and bougie is mostly an affectation of like petty bourgeois people in the United States who want to seem fancy. Yeah. I mean, look, I've got friends who are into motorcycles, which is seen as like this blue collar uh, thing, but like they spend so much money on their motorcycles. I have never spent more than $25 on a bottle of wine. It's like the, um, the beautiful boaters that Trump always talks about in Mm -hmm. order to be a beautiful boater. I mean, I'm not talking about people that have like, you know, a fishing boat that they take out on weekends. I'm talking like a beautiful boater with one of those little mini yachts. Big beautiful boaters. You've got to have a decent amount of money. I mean, having a boat is really fucking expensive. And yeah, I, th- I agree on the blue collar biker thing. Like you can spend like fifty, sixty thousand dollars easy on a bike and then all the accoutrements after that. But yeah, we were talking about you and wine. I'm sorry. Go on. Um, no, that's about it. I've just yeah. been trying to because like if you spend money on wine at all. I'm sure you've had the experience where you're like, I don't know what to get. This bottle looks good. And then you open it up and it tastes like ass. Yeah. So like if you're going to be buying wine, you might as well figure out what wine you like and what goes with the food you like, you know? Yeah, for sure. No, I'm uh, I'm pro wine. I think it's a little bit more refined, but I don't drink that much anyways anymore. That's one thing my hobby for the pandemic is not drinking. Oh, That's a hobby that I've gotten into, which look is Look really at nice. you. What a flex. If I, if I had to say, uh, talk about a hobby I have, it's probably getting into uh, paradox games. That's what I've done over the pandemic. I've gotten into uh, Crusader Kings 2. I've gotten into Europa Universalis 4. I've got into... 
Victoria 2 and I've gone into Hearts of Iron 4. And if that sounds completely nerdy and dorky to you, it sure as hell is. But it's a great way to pass the time. And it's like vaguely historical. It's like based on historical phases and historical things happen. So I could always like, you know, say it's research for the pot or something. Well, um, I don't know what any of those things are, but you're, you're um, better off. Boy Jamie told me he's playing uh I keep, I keep talking about my friends like everyone just knows who they I are. I know who he is by I feel now, like they, sure. You, you know, boy Jamie. Yeah, uh, the he, Jamie, but boy. He, he's been playing a game where you build a colony on Mars, and oh, really? it sounds like something that you would like to do. Yeah, I should check well. that out. I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm the only Paradox gamer out there, and I would like to see something be built on Mars. Lord knows... Uh, you know, we don't want Elon Musk to make that a reality without some communist trying out how to make it and uh, make it better before him. It's it's practice. Practice. Practice, practice. makes praxis. It's praxis. But um, speaking of boy Jamie and things communists should know how to do mm. and things that people think are blue collar but are actually quite expensive. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I also went to the gun range oh, recently. Hey. Nice. We tried to go several weeks ago when we were in upstate New York and they were all shut down up there because of COVID. So no guns for us. Huh. But you actually ended up being able to shoot. That's awesome. Yeah, I went to one in Mount Vernon in West Westchester. Oh, close. Very close. Very close. I just north of the get, Bronx. I uh, hit by a train in, in Mount Vernon. Oh, no. It was very nasty. Jesus. Very nasty. Many years ago. But I'm sorry. Oh, well, um, yeah. So, you know, my friend, boy Jamie, he's from the South. He's very familiar with guns. We um, call him Gun Boy. Yeah, <laughs> Communist Gun Boy, <laughs> Boy Jamie. Uh, it's about time. He, uh, yeah, he knows how to shoot guns. He's very familiar with them. And his he, father's in the military, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to dox anybody, no, it's but fine. Uh, <laughs> he a was. Lot of he was. Bj's out there. He in was. The world. Uh, he was an army him. brat. Um, and uh, he was like, "I think it's time for you to learn how to shoot a gun, girl, Jamie." And I was like, all right, um, you know, just in case. It's a good skill to I, have. Didn't you and I go to the range some years back we and did. I taught you how to use a handgun? New Orleans. New Orleans, right. Yeah, yeah, so it turns out they have way more gun rules in New York oh, than they have surprise, in New Orleans. Surprise. Um, For my brother's bachelor party, we took him to Reno, Nevada to shoot. Oh, and geez. he shot fully automatic like AK-47s and shit. It was pretty pretty. Well, low. you're allowed to shoot the AK-47s. You're not allowed to shoot a handgun in New York State unless oh, really? you have a permit. No shit. Yeah, so I'm like, that's fine. I'll shoot the big guns. Keep your hands off our Second Amendment, New York State. Like, oh, no, I have to shoot the really big, really <laughs> cool guns. Poor me. But, um, yeah, it was interesting. Um, it was a much more diverse crowd at the gun range mm. than I thought in my coastal elite head, you know? Not just chuds. I mean, some chuds, but... You're practically in the Bronx. I mean, Mount Vernon's like right there. Yeah, so I imagine it... Like, like shooting guns is an immensely popular activity in this country, so it doesn't surprise me that a diverse cross-section of people would be doing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I guess also, like, when I pictured the the Westchester gun range, I thought it would be like, you know, like wealthy suburban chuds, like right. the guys who own the ski doo dealerships and have expensive motorcycles and AR-15s and or shit. Or the really rich lawyers that took their guns out and the Black Lives Matter thing and everybody posted yeah. pictures of them and laughed at them. Yeah, like that's who goes to the gun range in Westchester. But no, there was a very diverse array of people there shooting guns, mm -hmm. having fun with guns. And... um I turns out I shot a 22 rifle. Oh, nice and easy. And yeah, boy Jamie said that was his first gun. 
And I was pretty good with that. And then as an add-on, we got an AK-47. Ah, nice. And I took my turn with that, too. And that was cool because it had, you know, big giant bullets. Ammo is very expensive. Apparently, ammo there's an ammo shortage yeah. right now. It's like the Chris Rock bit where he talks about if you made uh, each bullet cost a hundred dollars, there'd be less deaths. Yeah, for it's sure. not quite a hundred, but it's not cheap for ammo either. Yeah, no, it's not. Um, but I shot the AK, and it turns out I am a pretty good shot. Hey, nice. Perhaps because I have uh, good eyesight. I think that's part of it. They say that women make the best snipers. Oh, so, cool. Um, you we know, need a sniper on our side. Maybe someday, um, parody, I could <laughs> get a job doing that. You um, could be the, the first female uh, Dorner. Who's that? <laughs> Dude, like Andy's going to cut all of this out. a bunch of cops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, apparently there are already multiple communist gun girls. So, yeah, I can't um, believe you don't know about the commie gun girls. I'm going to have there's to like find a, a new gimmick. Yeah, I guess so. There's like a whole cadre out there on the internet what and i think they like battle for follower accounts and oh, stuff Oh, jesus so you're a little behind the times on that but i mean someone pointed out that we need as many communist gun girls as possible for sure, for sure and each one could have a different aesthetic i think there is there might be room for a goth gun girl out there who knows yeah well i mean i already have like uh, I, I i still feel so ambivalent about guns but i think i've come down on the side of pro and huh. I, especially because I've been getting so doomer lately, like, uh, you know, it is a fun hobby, but it may someday come in handy. You know, if I need to, like, um, shoot animals for food, I got to break veg, uh, you know, if we have a civilizational collapse or engage in some form of community defense with my comrades in the SRA, um, I won't be totally useless. Because here's the thing. I'm a fucking marshmallow. Yeah, yeah. White, I am a soft. marshmallow. I'm so I'm so white and I'm so soft and like these hands were like I've already talked to my friends about this multiple times. Like if the shit hits the fan, they can just leave me behind because mm. I'm not I'm I'm useless. Like sure. I don't have any valuable skills whatsoever. Sure, sure. And like boy Jamie is very concerned about this because he's like I don't want to have to leave you behind. So I think this was his effort. <laughs> he's like, but you're gonna make yourself useful. <laughs> this is his effort, yeah, to like justify in the future at some point when he's like, no, we should take girl Jamie with us. Sure, sure. In like the Walking Dead type scenario, he can make a case for you. Yeah. You along. Which That's, I thought was very sweet. Yeah, people don't need like music criticism after the end of the world. I feel like they could. No? Musical? I mean, maybe. I think everybody's <laughs> I don't really do, got something. I don't really do music criticism anymore. I think everybody's got something. I think you could rise to the occasion in the revolution and do some if you had to. Do some music criticism. Yeah. <laughs> For the rest. <laughs> my, sure. my uncle uh, Robert, uh, again, I'm not going to dox anybody here, but you know him. He lives out in Suffolk County. Very like, he's like a nurse and he's like a very kind of like not crazy, very normal type guy. But both of his daughters, my cousins, married cops, which is uh, always interesting. Good times and holidays. But uh, these cops, my cousins, have convinced him not only, that, not only that Black Lives Matter and Antifa are a violent Marxist uprising against normal-ass Americans, oh my God. but that they are coming to his nice little suburb. Oh, my God. On no. Long Island, on the South Shore no. of Long Island. 
So, I like your uncle. Uh, he's a great guy, but oh, he, bought, he bought a bunch of guns. So now oh, if you geez. go to his house, you know, you better have your not Antifa card on you because he's oh going to light you the fuck up. Does he know you do a podcast? No, of course Antifa not. Antifa in the name? No. No, <laughs> no, this is all this is all happening on this level, like way beyond reality, like you and I or podcasts or even the protests that are happening. Because I have other relatives, too, where this is happening, where... Uh, this propaganda out there and real fears. I think they come out of COVID and just the situation in the United States and the <sighs> world right now is turning them kind of a little wacky there. If they were already like sort of conservative, then they've, they've kind of gone farther in that direction. God so damn it. Is it it's Facebook? In our families. Is it's, Facebook radicalizing them? It's, it's two things. It's Facebook. That's so bad. And it's letting your daughters marry cops. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Don't let your daughter marry a cop. That's what I say. Oh, geez. Yeah, so bye bye uncle Robert. He will not be, he will no longer be a subscriber to the end. Bye bye. Bye bye. Speaking of bye bye, we've got some uh, Trump news, don't we? Oh my God. It's so good. We missed, <laughs> we, I have to say, we were not podcasting. We were talking about it, but we were not podcasting during the time of, you know, maybe three or four days when it appeared possible that Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States, might die because he had goddamn fucking COVID. Look. look. You're talking about this like it's in the past. I know. It is not in the past. It took Herman Cain like a fucking month to die. That's true. You're right. All right. And he was on all the good drugs too, I'm sure, because he was rich. You're very rich. And he was tweeting like that he was really feeling great, making a comeback right up until until he died. The drugs were so good, he's still tweeting from beyond the grave. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. It took like a month for Herman Cain, but it seems like... I don't know. I was I, I really got my hopes up there for a few days when uh, you know, the doctors were covering shit up and, you know, all these people were getting infected. I mean, not that, you know, obviously I think it's like not the most uh, powerful form of practice to just simply hope a fucking um, president just dies of a No, no, you disease, had high, high hopes for dying. I did. I had high, high hopes. And um yeah, no, it turns out he turned it right around. He got Regeneron or something like that, some fucking drug. He got steroids, Dexamorphotibida or something, and he's back, man. The he's steroids, back in a big way. They do not cure you, okay? Oh, I know, I know. I have, I have heard it conveyed to me through a friend of a friend who's a doctor. A steroid dealer, that yeah. These, <laughs> these stero- this, this particular steroid he's on is known as a drug that will make you carry your own coffin to the grave. Oh, okay. Wow, all right. So he, he might still, he's not out of the woods yet is what you're saying. No, okay. n- absolutely not. And a lot of people, a lot of times they get better and then they get worse again. Right, right, right. From COVID. But, but his doctor said that he's immune now and can mm. no longer spread the virus. He's out there doing rallies. He went to Florida yesterday oh doing God. rallies. He's so lit. Of every second of every day. It's so good. No, he's it's fucking so good. on fire now. Like, if you he's haven't watched the video fire. of him, like, dancing and grooving to the village people can, and saying that he'll kiss all the guys and the beautiful women, too. We have to too. play kiss all uh, the men. One we of my friends pl- was like, right into. Uh, National Coming Out Day has gone too far. <laughs> all right, I have it right here. Oh, the main thing with me, the nice part. The I nice part. It. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel. I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and them. Everybody, I'll just give you a big fat kiss. I'll kiss all the boys. Oh, he's so lit. I'll Fellas. kiss the guys and the beautiful women. 
He's fucking on it, man. I love this Trump. Like, if Trump's not going to be dead, he could at least be this fucking lit all the time. So, it's so funny because yeah. you realize, like, normal Trump, he might not be high, normal Trump. He might just be yeah. crazy and stupid. There's, like, there's this liberal trope I see a lot where they, they blame all of his Trumpisms on Adderall. Like, they're really invested in him being Adderall addicts. Like, like glass houses, guys. Yeah, seriously. He doesn't, he doesn't even need Adderall, man. That's just who he is. He's like a pure entertainer. I mean, our friends at Chapo Trap House talk about this shit. Like, part of the reason why his fans are so attracted to him is because he is like a natural-born entertainer. It's what he came he up is. as. And when he's on, man, he's fucking on. He was on fire. I'm going to kiss all the guys. <laughs> I think it's a little unfair that the women have to be be beautiful to get a kiss mm. from the president but the fellas big boob, come one come all could be those big beefy generals he's talking about there might have been a bunch of like uncut eight inch generals sitting right in the front row that he was looking at while he said that we don't know we weren't in florida we're just asking questions just asking and questions. the fact that this happened at the villages mm. oh my god mm. i mean if i'm not gonna try to reproduce what they conveyed and but just go back listen to the chapo episode yeah. on the villages and you'll understand it's like the lathe of heaven happening but yeah like part of why it was so um blackpilling to see this happen i mean it was funny but it was uh, so good it was it's it's also that like he's gaslighting all of us into basically believing that he's perfectly well and fine and i'm such like so pessimistic now that i'm just assuming that he's perfectly well and fine because i've lost that part of my brain where i feel like good things can still happen i'm yeah. like of course he's fine he's great now although in my defense in all of our defense part of why it seems so dire when it was happening the first couple of days he got sent to walter reed medical center or whatever is because we didn't know that there are like three hundred thousand dollar rich people drugs that are experimental that you can just take and like chris christie's okay now and trump is okay everybody's okay now but we didn't know about these like rich people drugs which by the way we wouldn't be getting anyways no like people like you not. and me would not be getting experimental regeneron regenetronic whatever fucking fetal serum whatever adrenochrome shit it is that uh, they're pumping into yeah, these he's people. just gnawing on a a human um <laughs> fuck What's the one that... I'm going to uh, kiss the baby. I'm going to chew its bones. Adrenal gland. I'm going to chew it. Yeah, it's <laughs> some straight up adrenochrome. There's just, just a steady supply of adrenal glands from poor children. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty dark. Yeah. It is some real rock star shit, though. It is. It totally it's is. It's like fucking Jesus and Mary Chain, <laughs> Marilyn Manson. They've all got nothing on him. The beautiful children. The beautiful children. <laughs> Just gnawing on a fucking femur of a three-year-old. Yeah, the beautiful children. No, like that's that's literally what what he is. Um, yeah. what was I gonna say? Oh, uh, I mean, as one popular leftist meme account pointed out, mm. um, you know, all the libs want Trump to die because they think it will solve all the problems. Oh, it's not solving shit. Um, yeah. Leftists, we just want him to die because it will be hilarious. It will be fuck. That's <laughs> what I was so saying. Funny it will just be really dies. funny, but. It's like two on the nose again. Like we, we can't have the perfect like Greek tragic moment, the, the Greek tragic apotheosis of the last four years, which would include, of course, Trump talking about how he's a superhuman and talking about how COVID's not real, talking about the hoax and all that shit. Like it would just be too perfect for him to succumb yeah. to this global well, plague. But at it, least I don't have to start believing in God now. Oh, God. No. Yuck. Ugh. Like I said, I, I mean, I still, I still holding out a little bit of hope, but like I said at the beginning, I'm like, if he fucking dies, there might be a guy, if these ghouls fucking die, like 
the next time the hostages ask me if I'm Jewish, <laughs> I'm going to be like, yes, please tell me what to do. Put that weird leather band on my head and like shove a Torah into me or whatever I'll go to is. temple. Yeah. I'll go to shul. I'll wear the fucking wig. I'll like, I'll do everything they Th- tell me to. There were people saying there's some real uh, Debbie Downers online who were like, oh, look at all of you hoping that Trump dies. It just shows how powerless you are. It's like, yeah. Sure. I mean, we're like hoping on this natural event to happen to this really powerful person. We are pretty powerless. It's still funny. It's so funny. It's still funny. They can't Uh, take that away from us. They can't take it away from us. Don't be Debbie Downers. Just just hope a hope and a prayer for our big wet president. Yeah. Cornell West said that hope is radical. And I I choose to believe that. I'm with Cornell West on this, hoping that Trump dies of COVID. Or wait, did he say hope or did he say, fuck, I fucked it up. Whatever. You know, you know what he meant. I I know. Yeah, he did say hope. I was like, wait, did he really use the same word as Obama? (laughs) Yes. Yes, he did. He took it back from Obama because he's a king. Yeah. He's maybe the only one. I think hope is pretty fucking, pretty fucking dead right now. But oh, what else do we have? Uh, Did you want to talk about the Supreme Court? Um. Yeah. Okay. Let's do, Interesting. I let's, mean, I guess so. No, no, do it. No, it's Ugh. good. We we're uh, we got a lot of show left. I think if you have a take, you should give your take. All right. Well, fucking McCourts today <laughs> in McCourts news. One weird trick to abolish the Supreme Court. Yes. So yeah, we got um we got some shit going on with the courts. It's bad. Uh, the Democrats, surprise, surprise, are just not going to do anything. Do you remember like a couple weeks ago when that other hilarious, like objectively hilarious thing happened and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg shit the bed like (laughs) six weeks before election? Like, again, just really funny how many liberals were standing up and saying if the Republicans try to push somebody through. Oh, yeah, we're going to burn burn some shit. Like, fuck out of here. Be cooler if you would. Be a lot cooler if you would, Libs. (laughs) We we believe that for one, for for zero seconds. They, they, (laughs) They didn't even try to block the fucking nomination hearings these losers fucking losers losers they really are yeah so um i mean we all we know you know and i know that the supreme court must be delegitimized and eventually abolished and replaced with the people's court or perhaps nothing (laughs) um that is also an option yeah the no the people's court or no court people are like oh well 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 what are you gonna replace it with you Stupid communists! Do they, I'm like, do they why do you, they, why do we need that? Do they, we don't need that. Do they realize how far into like imperial decline we are? I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but like we're looking at a constitutional crisis happening in real time. We're looking at like a gridlocked uh, political system that can't even keep like the economy going and people fed during a pandemic. We're looking at 30 million people potentially evicted in the coming months. Seriously, you think the Supreme Court's going to be around for another generation or two? Get the fuck out of here. And if it is, it's going to be part and parcel of like a really reactionary turn of this like... Already you see it in the judiciary of like the United States turning from like a bourgeois democracy into something way scarier, way mm-hmm, worse. Mm-hmm. Well, I said all those things um, to Sam on the majority report yesterday and he really, really did not like it. But guess what? It's going to live. This is uh, 
This is my show. That's this right. is our show. It's a fucking communist podcast. So um, Sam's just your id when I, you're on this show. He's just he's just he's just there. the cop your, in my head. I'm sorry, super ego. He's your super. He's ego. just the yeah. boss in my head. Kill the Sam in your head. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Not the real one. Hug the just hug hug the real one. Hug the real one. You know, even I want to kiss him. Even after the rev, um, he's gonna be fine. We'll keep him around. We'll give him like uh, a tall hill to stand on top of. and um, yell opinions from and you know everyone will gather around and listen to grandpa when I see Sam Cedar on the majority report I want to kiss the guy I want to kiss the guy Um, but what was I going to say yeah so um, I do think we need to abolish the Supreme Court obviously and delegitimize it on the way to there which um, is happening (laughs) oh (laughs) that's that's well along whether you like it or not that is happening Um, but I have seen some uh, some ideas from some folks on what we could do, some, some hacks mm-hmm. in the meantime to try to uh, reduce the power of the courts. Sure, to, throw them at me. I got a uh, lot of time right now. I'd be happy. Fascist control over everyone. Yeah. Um, I'm unemployed. Give me give me one weird trick to abolish the Supreme Court look, or, or multiple. I, I, I referenced this on Majority Report the other day. I think it's a very interesting plan we saw from Matt Iglesias yeah. called One Billion Supreme Court Justices. <laughs> You know, we just have a billion of them. That's, that's that makes a lot or of sense. Or rather, a billion and one, right? Because there needs to be a tie-breaking vote. Um, right. And that is, you know, some we don't have a billion Americans yet, but um, Matt Galasius is working on he's it. Gonna he's going to work um, on it. We're going to yimby our way to just, a billion Americans. He's, he's just sucking. He's out there sucking and fucking folks, <laughs> trying to make a billion Americans look like Matt Galasius. Oh, imagine that little egg man sucking. Ugh, he's God, just, he's doing it. it. Oh, Sorry. Um, don't yuck his yum. He's, he's like Epstein, just planting his seed all over the place, trying to make billion a billion Eggman. Um, yeah. Uh, so someone in the discord had the idea that it actually, I like this idea, right? Cause there's no limit to the amount of uh, people that can be on the court. Why don't, I mean, if we had like a good person in there, like, yeah, um, like me, yeah, like you or me, Bernie sure. would never do this. No, He's too I'll, 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 I'll go, I'll go on the court. Yeah. If we had a good person me. in charge of this, if I was in charge of, if I was president, <laughs> you were president. in charge of the court, you can just make <laughs> Every American, a Supreme Court justice. I would love to do so that. Then that would be cool as every hell. Every case becomes a popular referendum yeah. of everybody in the country. That's awesome. So it becomes like uh, more democratic even than the House of Representatives. Yeah, absolutely. Where just everyone's interpreting the law as they wish. It'll just be a mm-hmm. billion sovereign citizens. Yeah, I mean, it could, like, looking at some of these decisions, it could not possibly be worse than what we have right now. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, what's the woman's name? Amy, Amy Colby. Coney Barrett. Oh, Amy Coney Barrett. I'm going to forget that after this podcast because I'm really, really tuned out. But like they, they, um, somebody was sharing one of her decisions and she argued successfully that, uh, a transit workers boss calling them the N word did not create a uh, hostile workplace. Like literally she wrote the decision that said like, oh, the supervisor might've called them the N word, you know, a white, presumably guy calling a black guy the n-word but there's no proof that their subjective state changed that they became more hostile once the supervisor said the n-word so case dismissed yeah well she's just out there fighting neoliberalism okay (laughs) yeah man yeah 
the R word, the N word, whatever. Yeah. Um, Nathan Robinson actually has a very good summation of her terrible decisions. And uh, yeah. um, the Riddler. Yeah. It's, it's like it, just as bad as you would think. Um, also, apparently, I feel like I learned this in school, but then forgot it because like everything to do with the court, it's dumb. Yeah. It's really, uh, dumb. Um, really dumb. Apparently, constitutional review, you know, like that thing that we associate very heavily with the courts, sure. their ability to declare a law unconstitutional, yeah, thereby kind of their point, yeah. uh, stop Congress from doing things, whether those things are good or bad. Um, apparently, that is not enshrined in the Constitution. Oh. Um, it's they they just gave themselves this power way back when in Marbury versus Madison uh -huh. when they're like. Um, we can do a constitutional review because we said so. Okay. And everyone was like, okay, fine. Yeah. For, well, for like hundreds of years, people have just been like, yeah, cool. You can do that. And now it turns out that it's just bogus, the whole thing. Uh, yeah. So, you know, if the American people, if the legislative branch, if we ever have a good president, you know, if they had any balls, they could just say, you know, fake news, constitutional yeah. <laughs> review is bogus. And uh, anything goes. Just do whatever we want regardless of what they say that's great i was uh i was watching pop the left with Derek varn and douglas lane du that's his name douglas lane mm -hmm. yeah the other night and uh they had a really good discussion on exactly this on um how far the norms have taken us uh in this country just people deciding to act in good faith way too fucking far they're being like two normal ass political parties doing normal ass things having a normal one just just having a normal century right now here in the United well, States. Well, not anymore. Yeah. Uh, again, going back to the, I don't know, declining uh, U.S. Constitution. It's not looking good, folks. I mean, it's. I don't want to be crass and say that the the Supreme, the ACB or whatever her name, it doesn't ACAB. matter. ACAB. ACAB, <laughs> the new Supreme Court Justice, doesn't matter. But it's just so far out of the realm of what any of us can do anything about at this point. Yeah. That uh, I don't know. The whole thing is just. It's kind of a laugh. The whole thing is crazy. The whole thing is crazy. Well, speaking as of would say. speaking of norms, um, okay. All the Democrats, like, right, the Republicans, they're bad. Obviously, Trump is trying to cram through this appointment so close to the election. And the Democrats are like, how could you do such a thing? Right, how yeah. dare you? How this dare is you. so bad. It's so hypocritical but like, of you. But, like, they're allowed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, why wouldn't they do it if right, they're allowed exactly. to fucking do it? Exactly. Like, I would hope if there was, you know, a Democrat on there that they would. They uh, never would, though. That they would appoint yeah, a yeah, Supreme Court justice you whenever, would, they ca whenever they could. You would hope that, but that's exactly the kind of, like, um, two-sided game that's being played right now is because the Democrats keep norming themselves into the fucking graveyard. And like they, I, I don't see any indication whatsoever that they're going to burn shit down or they're even going to like do anything to block the appointment, let alone burn shit down. There's just like no energy. Yeah, out no. There. And they're the only ones who care about that stuff. They're the only ones. And who also care if about you're looking at like judicial restraint or judicial nerdiness or like whatever the fuck they pretend their criteria is. Yeah. I mean, they really, they're the only ones who believe in this stuff. Yeah. They really think that judges are supposed to be and are uh, an impartial deliverer of uh, truths from this, you know, sacred document. Yeah. When in fact, like, no, most judges, well, the ones the Republicans choose at least, they decide 
based on what they fucking believe. They decide right. based on politics. They're appointed for political reasons. They have an ideology. And there's a whole conveyor belt of like conservative psychopaths that just run through these like right wing institutions. Yeah. And just end up right on the And courts. they find some ass backwards legalistic justification for it after the fact. But that is not how they decide things. No, hu- I'm sorry. No human being except, I don't know, maybe like fucking Merrick Garland or someone decides based on some abstract legal principles and not on like what you believe is right in right. a given scenario. And I think that that is a fine way to decide things. I think we should decide things based on what we think is right. Yeah. And we should get people in there whose concept of what is right aligns with um, what is actually right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm down with that 100%. Uh, I think we should do sortition for Supreme Court justices at the minimum. I think we should start with uh, the punk squats uh, in New York City. Just sortition is when you just randomly like grab people, like your number comes up. It's uh, like a yeah, lottery. For a lottery. But we should start at like the homeless shelters and the punk houses and uh, I don't know, the subway. Just go around and grab people like you're the chief justice of the Supreme Court now. It couldn't be any worse than it is right now. No, absolutely not. I mean, I could see this is like this goes back to some of our theories on the kind of world we want to see. But for governing in general, it would make so much more sense, um, not as a professionalized thing that people do where they become enmeshed in it. It's like, no, like it's uh, it should be a service, like a real public service. Right. It's self-sacrificing because it's fucking boring and probably lamer than a lot of other things that you could be doing. Yeah. You should just get randomly. So it's like jury duty, you know, yeah. but judge duty. Judge it's duty, like, yeah. oh, my number came up. Now. I got to I got to do judge duty. Yeah. Fuck. But like, I'll, but like I'll, I'll be a good comrade. I'll be a good citizen. I'll yeah. do it. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, like the, the, the yawning chasm in between what sort of like system we need versus the one we have, it's pretty clear that like re- reforming it is uh, kind of a dead letter at this point. You know, it's, I don't, I don't know what else to say. Like, I don't want to shit on reforms, okay, because there are lots and lots of things that really, ah, they really are at stake right now, including... Um, laws that make it harder or easier, as the case may be, for workers to organize sure. and build class power in that way. I'm not shitting on reforms. Um, I just also know that if we really want to unfuck the world in the long term, um, the data calls for revolution. Yeah, it does. And and like labor law is something that you'll always hear liberals come back with Like when it comes to the courts. You have to care because of unions, blah, blah, blah. Like If you talk to union organizers, many of them will say that the Wagner Act, the, the National Labor Relations Act and the board are handcuffs. There's so many things you can't do, and especially after Taft-Hartley. So, like, the unions are dying a slow death right now, and um, I'm not an acceleration in, accelerationist in this, but, like, you know, they're going away anyways. <clears throat> so, I don't know. Yeah. So, um, you know who else is critical of the way that uh, we supposedly... <laughs> select justices for Who the Supreme that? Court. Um, Noam Chomsky. I'm going to, oh, I mean, I don't, I don't even know <laughs> what he thinks about anything anymore. I'm going to say something mean. So today in Horseshoe Theory, Senator Mike Lee had a tweet that could apply to the courts. It could apply to the election. It could apply to a lot of things, folks. Um, and he said, quote, democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are, I assume he meant prosperity. Prosperity, yeah. Um, we want the human condition to flourish. Rank democracy can thwart that. Rank democracy, like democracy is rank? 
I don't know. Like does he vulgar? mean that it's stinky? Maybe, yeah. I think it's like, I guess, too much democracy is what he's saying. Yeah. So, like, obviously, this could be interpreted in a number of different ways. He's a Republican. He's probably doing some, like, fashy Leviathan shit. Right. But um, perhaps, perhaps he has gotten into the work of King Amadeo Bordica. You think Mike Lee might be a Bordigist? I think he might be critical of democracy from the left. Wow, that would be incredible. Maybe he's come around the other side, and now Senator Mike Lee is going to come on the Antifada. I would love to see uh, Senator Mike Lee uh, log on with like an anime avatar and start yelling at people about the international <laughs> communist current. That would be cool as shit. You know, stranger things have happened. It's 2020. Anything is possible. Gotta watch those ICC teens like Senator Mike Lee. <laughs> but I feel like we talk, we, we like joke a little bit about left communism. We might make a reference to Bordiga. Yeah. We might talk about Tony Pancakes. And you're like, who's that? Who's Tony Pancakes? Um, so, uh, you know, I went, I, I used my SEO training that I received during wow. my time as a blogger. And I found there's a real hole in the market that I think we could really corner and make a profit on. Grift off, I Explaining guess. what left communism is. If you're suggesting a grift, well, I tell you, I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> I managed to uh, throw something together. I haven't really like written anything out for this show and just presented it. I think since History is a Weapon 1 about historical materialism, I think that went pretty well. But I think this shows, I think, how, how seriously we need to take this because our podcast a lot gets accused of, for better or for worse, being left communist, being a left podcast. We've had um, two episodes on communization, which is a tendency that comes out of the left communist tendency. Uh, we've never actually talked about left communism oh, itself. We're skipping steps. Yeah, skipping Typical steps. Typical communizer, skipping steps. <laughs> That's right. If you listen to those episodes, you've got that joke. But I, <laughs> I think that it's, um, yeah, I think it's good to like, to, to finally present this on the show in a way that makes sense. Because a lot of the ways that people talk about it online, they don't make a lot it's of sense. It's dumb and bad. It's really yeah. dumb and bad. It's, uh, we'll, we'll see. I'll bring you through this slowly. I'll put on my ASMR voice. I'll take a hit of my jewel. Mm-hmm. And I will give you a presentation on left communism. Yay. Me, 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 me. It's a very topical topic. It so is. I think it's a very important topic for reasons that we will outline below. All right. A lot of the confusion about left communism comes from people not grasping the historical specificity of it as a tendency. This confusion is added to by the existence of various self-described left communist organizations, militant groups, that exist up until today. So in my mind, it only makes sense to understand left com, left communism, as a broad tendency that set itself in relation to the mainstream of the communist movement and to really existing socialism in the 20th century. Hot take calling it socialism. (laughs) That's what they called it at the time. We don't talk about it much, but there have been many periodic crises of Marxism going all the way back to the lives of Marx and Engels themselves. Uh, The crisis that had the most effect on how we understand Marxism today was in the late 19th century in the long boom of what's called the Belle Epoque. Most readings of Marx's mature work at the time 
saw the inner laws of motion of capital leading to a mass of immiserated workers on the one hand and a more and more powerful capitalist class on the other and the growing contradictions between the relations of production and the forces of production leading to a great final epochal crisis in which the workers' movement, having patiently built its power, would prevail. By the late 19th century, that hadn't happened yet. Boo. Yeah, it sucks. What are you going to do? Do better, contradictions. So by the 1890s, you had a movement, especially within the German Social Democratic Party, to revise the Marxist political project to take into account a capitalism that didn't seem prone to some final epochal crisis. This is the context of the great debate between Karl Kautsky on the one hand and Edward Bernstein on the other. They were kind of figureheads for this debate about the path to socialism, whether it was sufficient to build democracy Democratic Party power to reform the here and now and create a patient a, uh, to patiently create a growing over of capitalism. Uh, the parliamentary road. Right. Or whether at some point the party must overthrow the system and institute the dictatorship of the proletariat. Flaff, 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 flaff. Right. Real dick pearl hours. <laughs> this debate went on for many years and never really resolved itself, except to the extent that uh, electoralism and trade union work did come to predominate over the building of the revolution. I'm talking late 19th, early 20th century here. At the same time, on both sides of the debate, a crude productivism was taking hold, wherein faith was put not in the working masses themselves, but in the inexorable increase of those productive forces. This was a way of allowing history to do the work for the revolution or for the reform. It also led to some crude understandings of the stakes of this overcoming, the overcoming of capitalism, especially in terms of national development and national chauvinism. Mm. Fast forward to 1905 and events in Russia blew the whole thing open. The seemingly spontaneous emergence of the workers' councils, or in Russian Soviets, in 1905, in the 1905 revolution, scrambled the political map because all of a sudden a new form of workers' self-activity arose that exploded from within the bourgeois distinction between the political and the economic. Right, So it's only under capitalist society that you have set on the one hand the political and on the other the economic. Those two things were intertwined within feudalism. But there being a sphere where people do politics and there being a sphere where people trade and work, this was basically undermined by this particular form of the Soviet. All advanced party discussion now had to grapple with this new form of self-organization that the class offered up itself, uh, not just as a revolutionary force, but as a direct threat to the kind of revised Marxism Revisionism. that saw the party as the patient teacher of the working class and as the main electoral mechanism for evolving past capitalism. This revision, though, did not go unchallenged. Even before the tumult of 1917, thinkers such as Rosa Luxemburg in The Mass Strike and Anton Panikok, that pancake guy you were talking about in Marxist theory and revolutionary tactics, were looking at these struggles of 1905 and were pushing for other Marxists, other communists, to see the struggle as emanating from the self-activity of the class as embodied by the party and not the other way around. But Bernstein's revisionism, even up to this point, was strong because in uh, 1914, uh, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, um, they basically were the ones that voted for the war credits, right? To send the mm. fucking working class Never into vote the for the war credits, guys. 
Never good for the left. Can we back up a second? Yeah. Talk about the party. Let's talk about You're the talking party, about yeah. how it's revisionist to have this vanguard party as the main uh, organism for political activity. Uh, it's, um, it's revisionist to, to imagine like the growing over of capitalism through the reforms of a social democratic Yeah, but party. I mean, this is also counterposed against the Leninist idea of the party, right? Well, Lenin hadn't broken with Kautsky yet. So this is like before 1917. So we're still in the part where like Kautsky is still the main leader of the faction of the international Marxist movement that believes that, yes, you work within the electoral system. Yes, you work within the trade unions, but you must be prepared for some moment, some event that's going to come that's the party is going to kick into revolution mode, right? And then the basically help the working class to, to overcome and build a revolution. So even like the, the strong, uh, the strong revolutionists still saw the party as this hybrid vehicle, but the, the Bernsteinite revisionists said revolution, we don't even need it anymore. And mm. Lenin and, and Luxembourg and Panikok and everybody were already fighting against those people by the time 1914 and the 1917. So this out. was not against the Leninist conception of the vanguard party no. necessarily as a vehicle for proletarian revolution and, you know, after that governance. Right, right. So I see. That was still like people had ideas, but it was still relatively vague. So let's bring our story. We're at 1914. The German and the French social democratic Marxist internationalist parties did what I think in retrospect might have been the most shitty <laughs> uh, betrayal of working class interests maybe in world history because you had this opportunity. They sat in positions on both sides of World War One to potentially stop the war by saying we're not going to send the working class to die. You're not going to get the money for this war. Well, out of that national chauvinism and out of this desire to be part of this bourgeois electoral system and part of the bourgeois state, they voted for these war credits, basically consigning millions of workers to the slaughterhouse. Um, they had to do it. Yeah, I guess they had to do it because of, uh, I don't know. They Pragmatism over ideology. They argued, honestly, that because Russia and Germany were facing each other, that the like enlightened quasi-social democracy of like, of good Germany had to be defended against like the czar's hordes of feudalism. This is how, if you're a socialist, you argue to go into world war one. Social democracy is a hell of a drug folks. Yeah. This is what, but this is when social democracy meant both things. Like this is like, mm, yes, there was right. the Russian social democratic party. This is only it meant socialism. We're talking about the moment when there's a split finally between social democracy and socialism, because as soon as they vote those war credits in 1914, you have the principled good guys, the internationalists like Lenin and Plankhurst and others, the socialists, the socialists who have a, uh, the Zimmerwald uh, conference where they kind of reconstitute all of the anti-war socialists. And this begins this, this split. So mm, that, so this is where suck Dems come from. This is where the suck. Well, they start with Bernstein. Right. But it's it's kind of like it's a debatable position that, you know, a lot of the opportunists take on and try to try to get like trade union or political power in Germany and elsewhere. Mm. But this is where the real fruits of that are shown, because what are the fruits of this chauvinistic reformist Bernsteinism? It's world war and it's throwing the working classes of Europe and the world into the fucking abattoir. The Great war. The Great war, which, as we know, people didn't realize it before it happened, but was like the bloodiest, stupidest war in human history. At least World War II, there were like some stakes, but this was just for imperial spoils and, and national chauvinism. So. Do better, suck Dems. Do better. So 
These debates would rage, uh, would again rage after this historical betrayal of the working class. Um, of course, what happens soon after that, of course, is that the success of uh, the Bolsheviks, uh, that minority party that calls itself a majority under Lenin in 1917, blew this a whole majority thing up again. report <laughs> with, <laughs> with Vladimir Lenin. Lenin. <clears throat> Because of course, in uh, in 1917, for the first time for the for the first time since the Paris Commune of 1871, the working class itself took the wheel of history. It conquered power with the recreation of these revolutionary Soviets, creating a dual power situation in Russia. I think a story we're all pretty familiar with. Hell yeah! So the decades-long theoretical split between the reformers and the revolutionary now led to a party split with the former remaining in socialist parties, but the latter creating new communist parties uh, in the advanced capitalist country. These individual national parties were already punctuated by practical divisions, many of them theoretical, and many just based on uneven development of capitalism across the globe. So the problem was that the long-awaited revolution had finally happened, but it happened in the relative backwater of Tsarist Russia. It had vindicated the revolutionaries, but put the whole Marxist project back into crisis. The workers were meant to inherit the fruits of advanced capitalist production, but in an underdeveloped, barely post-feudal Eastern nation, cut off from much of the developed world, how were revolutionaries supposed to act? What were the Bolsheviks supposed to do? What, if you're Lenin, what, what, what's going on? Is it possible to keep the deep, deeply democratic form of the workers' council when the working class is an actual minority in the country where the revolution takes place? Does the party rule on behalf of the workers in this revolution, or do the workers themselves dictate the way society is constructed? Is the kind of centralization, and this is super important, the vanguard party, necessary to achieve a revolution, the same kind of governance the party should hold over society? Who is the repository of power, the workers themselves or the party? So now we're in 1917, 18, 19. All this could be shoved off as long as the hope for revolution existed still in Central and Western Europe, right? But with the murder of Rosa Luxemburg, who is still today venerated as an early left com thinker, even though she's a little bit before the rise of left communism. Yeah, Marxist Leninists do not <laughs> like it when people do that. Well, I hate to say it, but uh, yeah, she's on <laughs> team left com. So with the murder of Rosa Luxemburg, literally by the social democratic government of Germany <laughs> in the abortive revolution and the world historical defeat of that revolution in Germany. It's not just Hungary, a meme, folks. They really did kill Rosa. The social and Democrats we literally are did. still mad about that as we should be. It eventually became clear that the Russian working class, at least for some time, would have to build a post-capitalist world isolated and alone without the fruits of the forces of production they were meant to have, uh, that, that were meant to have been built, built already to create a post-scarcity world of free association and equality. Dope. Yeah. And the Bolsheviks knew it, right? If you listen to any of the uh, Lenin or Bukharin or anybody during the Trotsky. Yeah, they were like, they we're knew. fucked. We're, like, we're, we're really screwed, but they, of course, they bet uh, they bet to win. Uh, they, they knew it, but while they were prosecuting a bloody civil war against literal proto-fascists, right? Like the white Russians in the civil war were literally proto-fascists alongside Western governments. The Bolsheviks had to decide what was the relationship between their power and the still vibrant Marxist movements across the globe, but especially next door in Europe, right? So you have the revolution in Russia and the surrounding countries, and then you still have socialist and communist movements in the rest of Europe 
Europe and in the United States and China, what's going to be the relation between this revolution and world revolution? So the emergence of left communism as a tendency arises exactly from these debates and exactly out of this practical revolutionary activity on the part of the class. Are you with me so far? Mm-hmm. All right. The Communist International, or otherwise known as Comintern, under Zinoviev, was tasked with coordinating the efforts of the world communist parties. Serious questions were raised. Was the successful Bolshevik strategy reproducible in the rest of the world? Should local movements be diverse, diverse and based on local conditions? Was the particular mode of organization, the dedicated Marxist minority vanguard party, engaging in electoral activity and mass union work to raise the consciousness and prepare to seize power in a crisis the model that all other parties should emulate? What was the relationship between the need to defend the Soviet Union, this first precious attempt at workers' power, alongside the needs to make this revolution global? Within the USSR and without, the, the huge question was what was even possible to create? What's, what form of social order was possible to create in such a backwards and broken country and economy. And it was within this heady and confused moment where power over the international movement was being centralized that two strains of opposition to the Russian model, the mainstream Russian model, arose out of the German-Dutch so-called council communists and what also later came to be known as the Bordigists in Italy. So in the midst of great debates and power struggles that racked post-Civil War USSR in 1920, Vladimir Lenin, of course, uh, we all know him, penned left-wing communism and infantile disorder, where he's isolating these people and these tendencies and he's critiquing them. Still a very, very popular piece today. Epic shit post by Lenin. That's right. Uh, and then this alongside uh, like left the seeds of left communism already existed abroad and also in Russia itself. So there were like these various protean uh, left communist groups such as uh, Bogdanov's, I can't even pronounce this, Vapered, uh, eventually the workers' opposition and other groups within Russian, the Russian communi communist movement itself. Um, these divisions between them and outside communist parties uh, would make left communism uh, a tendency. But it's important to point out that this tendency existed until the Bolshevization of the Comintern in 1925 with the expulsion of social democratic elements and the rise of Stalin in 1926, very much within the broader international movement, right? So it's not like the left comms are off like arguing amongst each other in a corner somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's not that the, the Bolsheviks are dictating from on high. There's a huge debate globally among all the Marxists, all the communists, and many of the socialists who wanted to, you know, uh, wanted to at least try to emulate part of what Russian Marxism was doing, right? To try to like figure out how to integrate all these questions and these holes yeah, together. Well, history is written by the victors, so. Yeah, that's why you read uh, left-wing communism and inf infantile disorder and not Herman, um, what's his name? Herman Gorder. Gorder. Herman Gorder's uh, response to Comrade Lenin. Because again, all of these debates that are happening are happening on a comradely level at this point in time because it's an open question. Mm -hmm. you know, what's the future going to bring? But you can already see <clears throat> by the time, like, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, 1920 comes, that there is something that looks like left com is arising. This, of course, increases uh, with the contentious debates in Russia and elsewhere over the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, right? How are we going to make peace with Germany and under what conditions? Whether or not war communism, as it was called, right? This, like, thrown-together sort of attempt to, to keep production going through conscription, direct conscription of people, 
and like the, the direct directly giving people goods in the civil war situation later the new economic policy which was opening up the gates to like capital accumulation again and of course Kronstadt rebellion and collectivization these were all matters that spilled out of Russia and entered the entire international milieu so this diversity reflected not just different ideas of different communists at the time throughout Europe and elsewhere, but it also, had, it also took account of distinct material conditions on the ground with different levels of development, not only of the capitalist economy, but also the communist parties themselves, right? So the Dutch-German communist party is in a different position from the Italian communist party. And basically by the time Trotsky and the left opposition is defeated and exiled in 1929, there existed an official Marxist opposition to the road taken in the Soviet Union, now reflecting itself in the Dutch-German KADP uh, in opposition to the Stalinist KPD, KDP rather, and the left faction of the Italian Communist Party under Bordiga, which for some time actually constituted the majority of the Italian Communist Party before Gramsci took control. Mm, so they weren't just in their armchairs. They sure weren't. They were an active part. Uh, these small groups, alongside Trotsky and his milieu, fashioned various Marxist critiques of the Soviet Union and the larger international movement. The Dutch Germans, especially Panikok, Hermann Gorder, and Paul Maddox Sr., a friend of the show's father, <laughs> held on to the Workers' Council form as the fundamentally revolutionary element. They called for revolutionary communist unions separate from the reformist trade unions of the day. The Italians, under Bordiga and Damon, uh, remained Leninists and in some sense became, quote, more Leninist than Lenin in that they rejected democracy itself and argued that the party was the revolution and that democratic centralism, right, the Leninist conception of the party, should be replaced by organic centralism of the party, which could hold the revolutionary flame alive against revision. What does that mean? So organic centralism is even less democratic than democratic centralism. Organic centralism is that the ideas that are bounced around inside the party are truly working class ideas, right? So like the, the party is, are these intellectuals and organizers that represent this revolutionary flame such as it exists. And they put forward the program amongst themselves you know, mm. the most advanced workers themselves in the party in order to come up with the basically the policies. And who gets to decide who that is? The party does. I see. <laughs> Very convenient. Yeah, so, you know, I really like Marxist Leninism, but it's just too democratic for me. Exactly. That's what they were saying at the time, because they saw all they saw this revisionism. You know, and they and they saw what was happening in the Soviet Union with these twists and turns back and forth, and they thought you just needed strong, intransigent, proletarian leadership on the part of the party. Um, so now Trotskyism, which we all know and well, while not left communist itself, came to represent besides the Dutch Germans and the Italians, the third leg of Marxist opposition to what became known as Stalinism by the 1930s. And it represented a critique of Stalinist bureaucratic degeneration personified in Leon Trotsky himself, right? Being, having been defeated by Stalin, having been kicked out of the party and eventually exiled, Trotsky wants to essentially put himself up as like the undegenerated leader of the revolution and uh, take back what was lost in the, in the degeneration under Stalin. Bold move. Yeah, I mean, he, he did pretty good until 1940. He had a lot of people that followed him, but then he got an ice pick. These yeah, there's pros and cons to uh, the Trotsky strategy. 
these movements were marginal, right? I'm talking about the three legs of this. And with the expulsion of the Dutch Germans and the Italian Lefcoms from the Comintern, they dwindled, dwindled to several hundred militants each with much less reach and contact within the working class than they had had before, right? Because the Comintern is like one big group, you know? Um, mm-hmm. and official like, Marxism. They won. Like, yeah. I get it. I get it why uh, more workers would want to be uh, aligned with the people that won. Yeah, that's right. And the issues that, um, that they raised, these groups, the same issues that were roiling the international movement until the debates were forced closed by Stalin, remained essential because they represented a thorough and diverse critique of really existing socialism from within a rigorous Marxist framework, Right. So alongside the winding official Comintern positions of rejection of social Democrats and the United Front and then conciliation with them and the Popular Front, the Comintern switching back and forth, left comms came to critique the fundamental presuppositions of Stalinist orthodoxy. Wait, what's the difference between the United Front and the Popular Front? It's uh, second and third period. It's uh, the the... The United Front is just communists, no socialists. The Popular Front says we're going to bring the socialists and the communists together in order to stop the Hitlerites. Uh, so they flip-flopped. They flip-flopped. They flipped and they flopped like John Kerry. Mm-hmm. So Stalinist orthodoxy was having serious effects on the international movement. Not only were all communist parties subjugated under the domination of Moscow, the lessons of the Bolshevik Revolution were being codified under the banner of something new to history called Marxism-Leninism. This Marxism-Leninism bore some resemblance to the thought and practice of Marx and Lenin themselves, but was vulgarized and turned into a worldview, a veritable state ideology of Stalin's USSR. Lost were the nuances of Marxist analysis and the principle of working-class self-emancipation. In their place arose a series of catechisms, the central principles of which were defense in thought and action of the USSR and its line, the veneration of leaders such as Lenin and Stalin, and the subsumption of Marxism to the dictates of what was becoming an increasingly bureaucratic state as in the 1930s. Left communism then, through the rest of the 20th century, represented the continuation of this subjugated diversity of Marxist thought and practice. Like official Marxist-Leninism, certain historically specific positions, like upholding workers' councils, upholding uh, the party, the strong party, denouncing reformism and critiquing the party form, etc., became codified into the abstract principles, bracketed off under the rubric of leftcom, but this was mostly done by the forces of worldview Marxism to attack and liquidate the ultra-left traitors and Trotskyist wreckers who remained mm. inside of Russia and the Comintern, right? So, so what we consider to be leftcom was like uh, was the the Marxist-Leninist attack on these sorts of uh, these these uh, wrong thinking uh, left communists at this time that they used to liquidate them. I see. Yeah, because it's never made any sense to me that the German Dutch Council communists, which are Basically, anarcho-syndicalists, I'm sure there are differences that we can get into later, uh, and the extremely terrifying uh, uber-Leninists of the Bordiga tendency would be lumped into the same tendency. Yeah, well, that's because, again, we have to look at this historically. There's no point in simply bracketing off these abstract principles that they have. This is all in relation to the larger communist movement at the time. These are happening in response to real things that are happening and real debates at the time. And because those debates have been squelched in the Soviet Union and in the 
Communist International, they had to find a forum that was outside of that. I like presumably they didn't want to be separate from the rest of it, but they were kicked out of the Marxist movement. So because of this, or, or at least um, for all the marginalization, some of the best theorizing of the 20th century ends up happening under the left communist banner. After all, as disappointment rose after the great purge of the old Bolsheviks in the 1930s, and as fascism arose in a similarly revolutionary force, the remnants of diverse thought through the revolutionary wave of 1905 to 1923, they were able to apply Marxist theory relatively unhindered compared to the dogmas of Marxism-Leninism. Of particular mm. import was the application of Marx's fundamental analysis of capitalism, the law of value, which, if still operated within the Soviet Union, would be a dire refutation of the whole project of building socialism in one country. For Bordiga, he never outright rejected electoralism, but he was arguing from a Leninist position that parliamentarianism should only be used with the goal of subverting and destroying parliamentary bourgeois democracy from within, a strategy that he didn't see as applicable in the context of popular coalitions with bourgeois parties, especially since it diluted the autonomy and the power of the Communist Party. When uh, Bordiga, you're telling me, would not have voted for Joe Biden? He would not. Most certainly would not have voted for Joe Biden. And then Panikok, right, was a cr critical supporter of the Bolshevik Revolution, but he thought that usurpation of the Soviets, the power they manifested with the overcomings of the contradictions of social democracy and trade unions, this usurpation of the Soviets was a mistake and led to the bureaucratization and ultimate defeat of communism, the entire project, in the Soviet Union. He came, uh, Panikok did later came to reject the party form itself and council communism then became a tendency within left communism in its own right. So moving forward into the 1930s, Trotskyist and left comms both assumed that the end of World War II would see a revolutionary wave similar to that under World War I. Wrong. Wrong. And now I'm going to quote uh, Twitter left com Noah Lennox, who helped me with this presentation. I'm going to do a quote from him. Quote, the anticipation of this revolutionary wave led to several events which shaped the communist left as it exists today. Most importantly, the formation of the International Communist Party, Bataglia Comunista. The PCI was formed in anticipation that the wave of strikes in Italy, which began near the end of World War II, was a signal of the revolutionary waves. Militants were split at the time on whether the formation of a new party was correct, with a small group of militants in France known as the Gauche Communiste de France, claiming that it was too early to form a revolutionary party. The PCI would become one of the founding organizations of the International Communist Tendency, then the International Bureau for a Revolutionary Party, and militants from the GCF would later go on to form the International Communist Current. There was also the split between Bordiga and Damon, where the faction of the PCI International, closer to Bordiga, split to form the International Communist Party. Why did I do a direct quote from Noah? Because I get really confused about all these different left It's parties. confusing. But I, I know we're going to have some listeners who are going to be angry if we screw it up. So thanks, Noah, for that. As we know, uh, this upturn in mass struggle after the Second World War did not happen. Wah, wah. So there was a ton of theorizing at that time uh, around that about the continued stability of bourgeois society and the deepening subsumption of workers into the nexus of power and profit and the role of the socialist and communist left within this. 
Perhaps the most important legacy that left communists kept alive was a true communist internationalism, not the domination of Moscow over official policy and doctrine. After all, Bordiga was the last person to have confronted Stalin to his face in 1926 when uh, he basically told Stalin that the Soviet Union should be run internationally, that different communist parties should be able to get a vote. You know, on, on how to run the Soviet Union. And Stalin did not take that very well at all. LOL. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, people got killed for a lot less than that. But that shows, that's like king shit right there. Like mm-hmm. that shows how dedicated the Italian communists were to internationalism. He had big Bordiga energy. In the end, all of this is ancient history. Left communism had its heyday uh, in the 1910s to the 1930s and receded into the background for the rest of the 20th century, doing important work, but largely marginalized from official worldview Marxism. The Dutch Germanists, the Dutch Germans ended up giving birth to the Situationist International, partly by the 1960s, and Autonomous Marxism by the 1970s and 1980s. The Italians retained militant organizations, uh, including the ones that I mentioned before, the French with the Gauche Communiste de France as well. These left communist groups in Italy were active in intervening in struggles. They had their own papers and propaganda, and they did organize local uh, communist workers groups. But none of these groups, whether German, uh, Dutch, or Italian, were able to break through even in the tumult of the 1960s and 70s, despite having small bases and factories up and through the 1980s. Um, The Italian groups, or the legacy of them, they're still around, and something called communization, which we've talked about on the show, has arisen alongside these existing left communist groups in order to keep part of this flame alive. Uh, of course, too, when we're talking about the later in the 20th century, anti-revisionist Maoism also starts to spread from China to the West and becomes, becomes another way that Marxists outside of the, of the Comintern system, there's no Comintern at this point, but outside of official Marxism can intervene theoretically and practically in, tr- in, in struggles. Um, so you've got left communism, you've got Maoism and Trotskyism by the 1960s. Left communism, now as we come to today, it only makes sense then or now as a coherent tendency as long as there is something to be left of, right? Without an official worldview, orthodox Marxism-Leninism in power, you know, as like this dominant force in the world, there's not really much to be a left communist of. We got China. With the, You want to get into a dangest argument now? No. I mean, look, I'm just saying there are still examples of quote-unquote actually existing socialism that Marxist-Leninists defend as communist projects. So with the collapse of really existing socialism in the USSR and the shift under Deng Xiaoping in China, by the 1990s, there was no longer any allegedly European Marxist state to even critique. Communist parties have receded in most countries outside of China in the last 30 years. But what's great is we still have left communists uh, historical positions and organizations today whose lineages go back in one way or another to the founding of the Comintern, right? So groups like the ICT and the ICP today uh, have this sort the of institutional... clown posse? Yeah, the International Communist Party. Um, so what's left for us today, right? When people talk about left comms today online or whatever, what's left? What's left are these 
these institutions like the ICT and the ICP that exist still. Uh, Juggalos are comrades. <laughs> and the international communist current. And you'll still you know, run into these people engaging in, in theorizing and creating propaganda and, and all that and organizing too, right? But what's also left is a series of historical positions and a body of really important existing theory that poses a lot of questions that are still important, maybe even more important than ever to us today. So the questions are, what was the Bolshevik revolution? Was it a bourgeois revolution or was it a socialist revolution? What was the Soviet Union? Was it state capitalist? Was it a degenerated worker state? Was it, as some Trotskyists like Hillel Tickton say, a non-mode of production? Like we, we need to look into the past and, and, and try to think about systematically what the Soviet Union was. Uh, another question is, a big one, how is the left so easily defeated in the 20th century, right? Was it the form that the parties took or was it in some senses determined by the development of that period, right? Are you talking about the left of communism or the left about everything. in Why general? Did communism not win? I see. Yeah, that's a huge question. But we can see all these people theorizing that exact question all the way through this period, right? From the 19, from 1905 all the way up uh, through today. Um, Another question, um, was the left itself uh, part of the production of history by capital, right? This is a very uh, controversial statement, right? But there's the, the argument that after a certain period, after World War I, uh, because of decay and decadence of the capitalist system, the left, such as it, as it is, could only ever surface not serve not as a revolutionary force, but as a way to kind of cohere different sort of reforms that capital needs in order to continue and be capital, not just presumably the liberal pressure groups, NGOs, and conservative trade unions we see today, but maybe even beyond that to socialists and communist parties. Mm. Are they playing a regulatory function for bourgeois society? That is a hot take. That's a hot take, right? And then lastly, and importantly, right, because this is about ultimately about creating a revolution um, within the working class. What is the role of the trade unions, right? How do workers today and in the past end up becoming radicalized and how can that be harnessed for overcoming capitalist social relations? All these questions are still there and left communism through the ages and up till today still has a lot to say about it. So it's telling, and I, I've run into this a lot, that people who take the critique of political economy seriously are called by their enemies left comms all the time, whether they consider themselves left comms or not. This happens to me. But it's not our fault that so many other tendencies within the communist movement have given up the ruthless critique in everything in exchange for sloganeering and campism. Boom. So ultimately, Suck it, haters. ultimately, left communism either confronts us as a series of abstract principles torn from the past to be applied blindly today or... Conversely, as an orientation towards struggle, the alleged uh, purity politics that left comms are accused of is a product of the divergence between the categories of critique outlined by Marx and the real world messy work of building a new world. But if we impoverish our critique to match the limitations of the future, we'll be left helpless in the continuing battle to build a better world. We could do worse than to follow the examples of those who pushed against the tide of ideology in all directions and upheld the principle of the ruthless critique of everything in existence. And that's why we stand Amy Therese Thought. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> so that's it. That's my presentation. So, yeah, that's my, uh, my presentation on left communism. Again, 
I don't consider myself, I never have considered myself the left communist. So if I got something screwed up there, um, I apologize. But uh, again, I only get called a left communist because people attribute that to me uh, when they hear the things I talk about. You're not a left com. You're just an asshole. I just have an infantile disorder. Yeah, that's all it is. Vi sembra un po' che provate voi a lavorare. Se otto ore vi sembra un po' che provate voi a lavorare. E provere e delifere. Oh, riverano 